I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. What up, yo? JJ, what's crack a lacking? I don't do crack, so I don't know. Okay, I'm sorry. How has work been? <laughs> Work's been good. <laughs> we can also just dive right in. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> what's going on with you? I uh, probably am overcommitted on you my like to do that. responsibilities at the moment. I know. It is on brand for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's on brand for me. It is. Right. Anyway... I think we're just going to dive right in to the snack-sized episode because we got all sorts of things to tell you about today. What's first up on the list? The first thing is that I want to give a quick update to our high-rise syndrome episode. That was, uh, it was a few episodes back now. Uh, The name of that one is I Believe I Can Fly. And... (laughs) We talked about high-rise syndrome, mostly in cats, because it mostly occurs in cats. Again, as a quick refresher, high-rise syndrome is, is the term that we use when an animal falls more than two stories. And so I wanted to give a couple of quick updates and then also give you some dog information. Because in that episode at the beginning, we said, well, we'll tell you a little bit about dogs. And then we you just didn't the ever really do that. <laughs> I forgot. So, okay, quick updates. First, on the kitties. We talked about how kitty cats reach terminal velocity relatively quickly, but we didn't talk about the speed. And so I thought that we would go over that first because I think Mm -hmm. this is super interesting. So cats reach their terminal velocity, which, as JJ explained to us last time, is that maximum speed that a falling object achieves as it falls. So it stops accelerating mid-fall and then remains constant the rest of the way Mm -hmm. down. So that terminal velocity in kitty cats is about 100 kilometers per hour. That's about 60 miles an hour. Mm. And they reach that after falling only about five to seven stories, which if you think about it is not that big of a, distance when you're talking about like falling off of a high-rise apartment building right so they have this ability to reach a relatively low cruising speed pretty quickly and that's one of the reasons that they are so successful at surviving these falls Hmm. and so and this might be a little bit morbid but i thought i would give the human information oh no about people that fall or jump so that you could compare So just trigger warning about that. If you don't want to hear the information about people, just hit the 10 second forward button and we'll be all set. (laughs) So in people, the terminal velocity is about 192 kilometers an hour. So almost twice as much. That's about 120 miles an hour. And people don't reach terminal velocity until they fall 30 to 40 stories. Yeah, so the distance, 30 to 40 stories, compared to five to seven stories, we're talking about a factor of like six to eight. Wow. So people have to fall between six and eight times as far 
to actually achieve their terminal velocity, and the terminal velocity is twice as much. That's why there's that big discrepancy between, like, how many cats survive falling off of a super tall building compared to people. Mm. I wonder what would happen if Catwoman jumped out of a building. That is a great question, and I don't know the answer to that. But I think because she's just a person in a suit, probably the people version, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) She also doesn't have the vestibular system of a cat. So cats' vestibular systems are really, really hyper-attuned in the falling uh, riding reflex that they have is really amazing. It's much better. Like, pretty much everyone, people, animal, like, all animals have some type of riding reflex. Mm-hmm. But cats have, like, a really super good one. Their their vestibular system is just on point. And so they flip themselves over really quickly. And then they can just parachute down at a leisurely interstate speed. <laughs> you know? Anyway. Activate the tummy flaps. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about dogs since we um, kind of skipped that uh, part last time. So dogs behave more like humans when they fall. In dogs, the injury severity and like things like death and life-threatening injuries are directly proportional to the height of the fall, which is different than in cats like we talked about last time. There's a little bit of controversy uh, about exactly what increasing fall height uh, does to cats prognosis but the data is clear in dogs the higher the fall the less the chance of survival and the more the chance that they're going to have really bad injuries also in the cat episode we talked about how kitty cats uh, can land on you know concrete grass mulch you know and and have similar outcomes in dogs the landing surfaces do cause more total injuries so Uh, If they land on concrete, that's worse than landing on grass. Hmm. Dogs still get that sort of triad of injuries that we talked about in cats. The classic ones are like injuries to the thorax, the face, and the limbs. Now, there's a lot more other injuries, and we talked about those in the previous episode, but that's kind of the hallmark triad of falling off a building if you're an animal. Dogs get that same pattern, but the incidence of where the injuries occur is a little different. So. In dogs, first off, they get more limb injuries than cats. And it's thought to be because dogs in general have like really thick, strong forelimbs that probably absorb more of the force before the chest and the chin have a chance to hit the ground. Hmm. Even dogs falling relatively short distances of one to two stories sometimes doesn't result in good outcomes. Mm -hmm. So they can have relatively short falls in, in and not do that well in dogs it's still mostly young dogs sexually intact dogs uh that that have this happen and it's usually in like the warmer months Mm -hmm. one interesting thing when i was looking at the literature about dogs though is a few different types of causes were noted in these studies some of them were kind of wacky i'm gonna read you a really crazy one okay but dogs that purposefully jumped we're usually chasing a ball or like a toy mm-hmm. or going after an intruder and fell. And then I'm going to read you this one super crazy one mm-hmm. um, that when I was reading, 
I came across actually highlighted it and sent it to JJ while I was doing the research. I actually just wrote a book chapter on high-rise syndrome in dogs and cats for Vin. And so that's why I was doing all that research after our episode aired. This isn't like a magazine article or like a BuzzFeed or something like that. This is a published scientific study, okay? Uh, It's really the only study that I could find that specifically focuses on dogs. It's from the 1980s. So I texted JJ, like, right as I was reading the study, I just sent her a highlighted image because I was like, this is the craziest shit that I have ever heard of. (laughs) Okay, again, trigger warning because we're talking about long falls. Okay, quote, one dog, a Pomeranian, was thrown out a window by the explosion of nitroglycerin being used by the homeowner to clean his guns. The dog fell through the fire escape railing and landed five stories below on some garbage cans. And I was just like, okay, back up. Why are we using nitroglycerin in your home to clean guns? I mean, when I was younger, I saw my dad clean his guns all the time and there was nothing like that involved. I mean. Not nitroglycerin? (laughs) Like what? 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 Anyway, I when I read that, I was just like, what? Oh, my God. Like, what? That sounds like a mistake. <laughs> anyway, I sent it to JJ right away because I was like, am I hallucinating? Like, is this real? Am I in the Twilight Zone? Am I on a punk show like right now? Is it weird that the stories of cats surviving really long falls makes me tear up? But reading about a Pomeranian that got blown out of a window from a nitroglycerin explosion is, like, so tragic that it's hilarious. Does that say something about me as a person? I don't know. It says you, you, you like cats. <laughs> I don't hate dogs. It's not like I want dogs to be blown up by nitroglycerin. <laughs> I mean, the mental movie is, is kind of funny. You see a little puffball delicately floating through the air and then landing yeah. in some trash and looking like... Is this my life? I got blown up and now I'm landed in garbage? What the fuck? This is, I'm too bougie for this. I was not able to ascertain from the study whether the Pomeranian was one of the dogs that survived. However, there's a very high chance that it was because guess what the survival rate of dogs in this study was? Hmm. 99%. Wow. Now I'm wondering, does breed have anything to do with it? Like if it's a bigger dog, do they have more of a chance of injury than the little tinies that are made of cotton? That's an absolutely great question. And I'm going to say, we don't know for sure. In studies, they have not seen a correlation between the weight of a dog and the chances that it will survive a fall. Mm. I said that the survival rate in that study of dogs was 99%. That doesn't count the ones that were euthanized or presented dead on arrival. Okay, so essentially, if you made it alive to the hospital and your owners accepted treatment, then you had a 99% chance of survival. Yeah, you got to... I mean, it sounds like most of them, if they made it to be alive, they had... Mm -hmm. I mean, that's going to... Usually those are the ones that don't have as many problems. Absolutely, right? If you have really super severe injuries, you might just die and not present. You know, in the first place. So, um, <laughs> not present. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> um, not not <laughs> not turn up, you know. I mean, you might present, but <laughs> you might be presenting DOA. Maybe. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, coming out a little too much. It's fine. It's fine. I laughed about the nitroglycerin, so we're even. <laughs> Let's talk about fall height, because in the study of dogs, mm-hmm. we see dogs falling between one and six stories. And I can't find any reports of dogs surviving falls over six stories. And when I was doing my literature review, a couple of sources said, the chances of dogs surviving more than a six-story fall are almost none. The last major difference in dogs is that they have a tendency to tumble when they fall, whereas cats, Mm. uh, that vestibular system, even if they're falling with their back towards the ground, that vestibular system flips them around quickly, and then they put their limbs in the position, and they're like, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, right down. (laughs) And dogs... Superhero landing. Exactly. Dogs tend to tumble and so do people, right? And so Mm -hmm. if dogs or people fall off um, of a building, they might fall onto a part of their body that makes it less likely for them to survive, like their head, for Mm -hmm. example. So, What's their terminal velocity? Oh, that's a great question. And I couldn't find it in any of, uh, I couldn't find it in any studies. And I think that's because the mass of dogs varies so dramatically. There's not really a set one. Sweet. That, I think, is my full update <laughs> on high-rise syndrome in dogs, JJ. Oh, I'm getting, I'm getting a t-shirt idea. Okay, I'm ready. We have to get Stacy to draw us a cat doing a superhero landing <laughs> with a tiny metal <laughs> and a cape. I love it. And it's like, I believe I can fly. <laughs> saliva (laughs) i can believe i can fly the caption could be some sort of cheesy wording that's like those posters that are like hang in there but you know maybe some sort of pun (laughs) stick the landing oh oh, no (laughs) oh we are gonna get arrested for this episode (laughs) there people are turning the podcast (laughs) off right this second oh my god Okay, let's immediately shift <laughs> topics so that we don't lose more listeners. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, I have, uh, let's see, I have another update for you, okay? This update is on grape and raisin toxicosis. Now, you might remember last season in Snack episode 2.6 titled Cream of Carter that we talked <laughs> about. <laughs> The link between no. tar- yeah. between tartaric acid and grape and raisin toxicosis. So let me do a brief recap, and then I'll read you the new information. Okay, so essentially, a bunch of veterinarians uh, and poison control people all got together and were like, dudes, we're seeing the same histopath changes like on necropsy from dogs that got sick from eating cream of tartar, like, for example, homemade Play-Doh would be a common source of that, okay? Versus dogs that are getting into grapes and raisins and dying from that. The changes in the kidneys are virtually identical. What? Like, maybe this is related. And so so they put out the statement that was like, we are proposing 
that tartaric acid is the link between these things. And grape and raisin toxicity, the reason it happens had been previously unclear. Maybe this is what it is. Okay, so update July of 2022. So this is hot off the presses. (laughs) This is in the journal Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care, a brand new study on this concept. So the article presents case summaries of six dogs who either ingested cream of tartar such as you would find in homemade Play-Doh, or tamarind pods, or tamarind paste. And I had to look up what tamarind paste is, and it is a specific type of paste that you could use in cooking. What are the pods? Well, let me tell you. So the tamarind tree is a legume, Mm -hmm. and it bears edible fruit. It is probably indigenous to tropical Africa. And the tree produces these brown pod-like fruits that contain a sweet tangy pulp. And it is used in cuisines around the world. Mm-hmm. Also in traditional medicines and then to polish types of metal, <laughs> which is a little weird. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Sounds very edible. <laughs> so uh, the study found, quote, Gross and histopathologic changes described in cases of grape and raisin intoxication closely resemble features of tamarind and tartaric acid poisoning in dogs. Uh, And then recommendations. Dogs known to have ingested cream of tartar, tamarind pods, and or tamarind paste should receive decontamination and IV fluid diuresis ASAP. And if you want to go back and listen to that episode again, it is Snack episode 2.6, Cream of Carter. <laughs> I can't with these titles. Yeah, you're the one that said it. I know. <laughs> anyway. What else you okay. got, G? Okay. Well, so the last topic that we have for today is a important announcement. And this is also super hot off the presses. Because I just received this email yesterday. Mm -hmm. This email is from Auburn University College of Veterinary Medicine. It's announcing a new prospective study on hemoabdomen in dog patients. Hmm. Now, you might remember that we recently did an episode on hemoabdomen. I don't remember what episode number it is, but it's the one titled Zombie Shark. Oh, Jesus. That one was my fault. (laughs) So. So, you know, there's two types of eligibility for this. So I want us to to read about this. I want to make sure everyone gets this information Mm -hmm. so that you can start referring patients as you see them clinically, talking with owners about this and getting them on down to Auburn uh, to the vet school to have treatment. And so I'm going to read the important information included in this press release. And then later this season, In just a couple of episodes, we are actually going to sit down and talk with the doctor who is running the study and get some more information about it because it sounds really interesting. So we're trying to get that set up right now, but we're going to get a preview today. Exciting. I know, right? So essentially, Auburn is calling for referrals of canine hemoabdomen patients. And this is a study that seeks to find a cure for hemangiosarcoma. Mm, that would be amazing. Wouldn't it? Yes, it Old would be Old retrievers amazing. everywhere and German shepherds everywhere would rejoice. Absolutely. 
So I'm going to read directly from the uh, press release right now because this is really interesting information. Okay. The press release says, quote, new data, including over 190 prospectively evaluated dogs with hemoabdomen, indicates there is more hope than you may think for your patients. Approximately 30 to 40 percent of older large breed dogs with hemoabdomen have benign tumors that are cured with surgery alone. Until now, we were misled by retrospective studies that predicted a much lower rate of benign tumors of the spleen. Over 95% of dogs recover from surgery and are discharged in under 48 hours. Our open prospective trial offers state-of-the-art care with significant financial support for your clients. Mm -hmm. And there's two types of eligibility. So the first one is splenectomy. So any dog with a hemoabdomen secondary to a ruptured splenic tumor is eligible for this study. These patients are immediately eligible to receive a $1,000 discount off the cost of their splenectomy at one of the participating ethos hospitals, including Auburn's Veterinary Teaching Hospital. That's a lot. It is a lot. That might be decision changing for people. Yeah. It could be. Mm -hmm. Some dogs may not be eligible if they have pulmonary metastasis, Mm. significant heart disease, or if they have received chemotherapy in the past 30 days. Okay, now I'm going to read the second eligibility uh, section. Treatment eligibility. Dogs that are confirmed to have hemangiosarcoma are potentially eligible for the treatment phase of the study with Auburn Veterinary Oncology, which is fully funded at no cost to the owner. Wow. This phase offers several novel therapies for hemangiosarcoma that were selected based on our current understanding of hemangiosarcoma genomics. So this is huge. Mm -hmm. You know, as you guys out there are listening to this podcast and you're seeing these hemoabdomens come in and you're seeing, you know, splenectomy pathology coming back with hemangiosarcoma, just know that this is an option that you have. Really quickly, let's talk about the ethics of referral for things like clinical trials. So just kind of hitting the high points. This is never something that you want to decide for an owner. This is information that you provide in a very non-judgmental way and you allow them to make the best decision for them. Realizing that if the owner lives a substantial distance away from Auburn, just geographically, that still might not be a great possibility for them. It might just not be doable. So you always want to be very careful not to apply pressure and to reserve any sort of judgment and just Try to put yourself in the owner's shoes and understand that having financial support might not erase the burden of long travel, arranging schedules, you know, transportation at all. A lot of people don't drive, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So as we think about recruiting people into the study, I encourage everyone to keep those things in mind. However, I think this is such a wonderful opportunity, one that I will definitely be sharing with people as I see hemangiosarcomas roll in, because I see them a lot uh, working uh, in the emergency clinic. Mm-hmm. I bet. We see them um, very commonly. That's great. Uh, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, a, that's amazing. And I'm proud that it's, it's here. Me too. Me too. Auburn is really good about doing these these clinical trials. Uh, Mm -hmm. For a while, they were doing a lymphoma clinical trial. 
So I, I was so excited uh, when I got this email. I literally, I literally pulled up the email, read it, and was like, holy monkeys. Mm-hmm. And I immediately sent the PDF attachment to every veterinary surgeon I know. I literally just like sent it <laughs> because I was like, they need to know. Like, they mm-hmm. need to know about this. They see these every day. Every mm-hmm. day they see them. I got a couple of people I'm going to send it to. Yeah. I'm hoping that when we have the director of the study come on to the podcast in a few episodes, that they'll be able to share more with us about, you know, which facilities in Alabama. You know, is, is it only Auburn in Alabama? Are there maybe other facilities, say a facility really wanted to be a part of the study and partner? Is that a possibility? How would they go about that? So it, I'm really interested to get more information on that. Mm-hmm. So. I'm yeah. really looking forward to recording that episode. And uh, so it should be, you know, in a, in a few weeks, some point, guys. So listen out for that. Squee. That's everything I've got, JJ. I like it. I feel smarter now. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. That is, that's, that's the goal. The goal. <laughs> I mean, look, it is the goal. Mm-hmm. It is the goal. I mean, it is. It doesn't take much, but every little bit helps. Well, I get so excited. You know, I'm a nerdy nerd nerd. So when I read a study and stuff, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> let me just tell everybody about this. Because they really jazzed about it. <laughs> Don't clean your guns with nitroglycerin. Just remember no. that part. Mm-mm. No. What the hell? So I think we have time for a favorite thing, don't we? We absolutely do. I think we did one in the last episode, but we hadn't done one for a long time before that. So I think we're due. I like it. Our gratitude practice. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go first? Let's see. I think mine is going to be that I finally found somebody to paint my dining room furniture. Yeah. Because my dining room furniture is it, old and shabby. But there's some sentimental value to it. The china cabinet, if this is correct in my brain, was a gift from my great-great-grandmother to my mother when she got married. And when my mother passed away, it came to me. And the buffet belonged to my grandmother on my father's side. And when she passed away, it came to me. And they matched perfectly. Oh, wow. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, one's from... Maternal side, one's from paternal side, but I mean, they look like I bought them as a match set. Wow. Unfortunately, I mean, they from at least the 50s. I mean, they're they're really old and they, they don't look great. They kind of fallen apart in some places. But in my old house, because the room they were in was kind of really dark and didn't get a lot of sunlight, you didn't see the imperfections. But this new house be full of sunlight and whoo. Day was day was rough, so I I got motivated and asked some people for some suggestions and mm-hmm. got turned on to a very nice lady that's involved with University Pickers, and we <laughs> delivered both of them to her uh, yesterday okay. afternoon, and hopefully she, you know, I could tell she didn't want to make promises, and I I wasn't trying to hold her to anything, but she's thinking she can get them both done in the next month, month and a half. So, Oh, that's fantastic. I was like, yay. The dining room looks weird without them in there. It's like a big empty room other than the cheap groom table that's in there for the dog. But I'm excited because I will actually be able to 
utilize them and they're not going to look like I picked them up off the side of the road. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's so exciting. Mine is along a similar vein in a way. Hmm. I had the opportunity recently to share some pieces of my family history in my counseling classes. So Mm -hmm. in one class in particular, our is family counseling. Okay. So we're talking about the cultures of families and things like that. And one of our assignments was to, you know, bring an object that's representative of your family culture. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, Oh gosh, like what am I going to bring? And then Mm -hmm. I, then I thought like, Oh, the daisy plates. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring the daisy plates. Well, I'm not going to bring them because I don't want to risk breaking them. Mm-hmm. I took a photo of them <laughs> and shared about that. But so smart. In 1978, when my parents got married, my mom picked out wedding china, as one does. And the like, I guess back in the day, like, I don't know when I got married, I didn't have china and all that stuff. Like it just wasn't the thing you did anymore. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, I guess picking out wedding china was like a big fucking deal. And mm-hmm. so you most of the people didn't have one. They had like, here is my casual china or whatever. Uh-huh. And then here's my formal stuff. Okay. Here's my Christmas and my Thanksgiving. Yes, yep. exactly. I, I am. I that is not my situation, but it was the thing in the 70s, apparently. So when I was growing up, we used my mom's casual set of china for like any type of big dinner or because it was nice stoneware type plates mm-hmm. the really deep bowls it was great for like comfort food like chili and spaghetti and things like that okay now we'll post a photo of this to social media but if you can imagine the most peak 1978 casual china pattern imaginable it is daisies in a bunch in the center with like a light brown color of the plate but with speckles and then a brown rim around the end it is like very you know orange brown and yellow which was like all of the colors of the 70s and and early 80s right yeah and so that sounds like it would be not pretty but these are amazing and I love them. Okay. Since I was a child, I've absolutely loved them. When we got to the 1990s, my mom would always be like, oh, what the hell? Like, why did I pick this? Like, these bother me so much. <laughs> and I would be like, do not get rid of the daisy plates. I want them. They are my favorite plates. Like, do that is that is what I want. Do not throw them away. I want do them. Do not replace them with country ducks. Like yeah. Well, the look. In the 90s. For a while, there was a lot of country ducks up in our kitchen. Okay. <laughs> I know. So anyway, I my mom you. is going to listen to this and be like, what That's the hell? It's a common place for everything. <laughs> Look, at one point, it was ducks with a country blue and cranberry accent, and the duck would have like a bandana on its neck, and that's just the way that it was. Mm-hmm. So anyway, before that, it was daisies. Mm-hmm. So now, my uh, my mom's house, our family home, the one I grew up in, you know, big farmhouse and everything. It's like a that really truly was the symbol of our family, that home. Uh, it burned to the ground in 2010. When that happened, all of those plates and the whole China set was in a part of the house that 
I mean, the house was a total loss, but there were parts of it that you could still sort of walk through. Mm-hmm. And those plates were on the border between the places you could sort of walk through and just ashes, you know. Mm. And they were not made to tolerate that type of heat. And so they were still there. But if you pick them up, they would just crumble. Mm. And so, you know, we were looking at everything. You would try to pick it up. Pieces would just break off. You know, a lot of them were cracked from the heat already. But the main bowls, like the main thing that I loved, weren't there. And we were like, where the, like the fire inspector was there. We were looking for stuff. We were trying to figure out like what was even salvageable. And we're like, I'm like, where are the plates? They're not in the cabinet and everything. And we're just like, did they get blown out? Like what happened? Finally, my mom is just like, they're in the dishwasher. (laughs) Because we just used them like yesterday. Oh, wow. And so we pried open the dishwasher and there they were. And And they were fine. Totally safe. I have them. They (laughs) sit in a place of honor at my house. We do not use the Mm -hmm. daisy plates. I have, so I have the daisy plates. There's four of them that uh, survived. And then a set of salt and pepper shakers, like really fancy, big, like as big as like a baseball, you know, really big Mm -hmm. that survived, but you can see the crack patterns in them and stuff. So I have those things and that's what's left of the daisy plates. And I was like, this is what I'm going to bring to represent, you know, my family and stuff. Mm -hmm. And when I talked about it in class, of course, I was like, (laughs) like, just I cried. And you know how much I hate crying in front of people like, oh, that sucks. Mm -hmm. The reason it's a good thing is that it, I felt like it really gave me like an opportunity to sort of <laughs> examine that part of my history because they are very special to me. Mm-hmm. They remind me of my childhood and comfort and things like that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I have decided that we're going to use them. Good. I like it. And I might order more because I found the pattern. Oh, wow. It is a pattern called Sunnyside, and it's obviously not still in production. Mm -hmm. But I found several full sets online. Yeah, definitely. Because that way, you know, if something happens, then you have backup. Absolutely. If I hadn't had to bring that for class, I wouldn't have Googled it. So I want to see a picture of it now. I can email you a picture. I mean, I I was, yeah. I was around okay. for the 70s. Oh, wow. I, I have seen these before. Uh, maybe at my house. They sit out on a glass table on display. No, um, somebody in my family had these. Oh, really? Yeah. It was apparently a very popular design. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got a, like, I, whenever I got that china cabinet, I also inherited my mom's wedding china. Yeah. And hers is, I have no idea what type of they're they're white and they mm-hmm. have these little white flowers around the edge and then the the edge of it is silver kind of mm-hmm. um but that's she only got one set of china was her fancy china that nobody has ever used it's been in the china cabinet since forever she never got you don't want to break her. it yeah <laughs> that, but I looked it up because I was like well if something breaks I want to make sure I can get a replacement and yeah. it's all it's very common but. Oh my gosh, who had this? Somebody had this. I'm going to, 
show this picture tomorrow to my family. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm looking at it and I'm getting like this strong feeling of recognition. All right, guys. Well, that's all the time we have. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It, it really does help. Yeah, it does. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.